for me to be here with three distinguished panelists to talk about labor mobility after Brexit. My name is Jolt Darvas. I'm a senior fellow at Bruegel, and I will be chairing this session. <coughs> uh, and I think I'm not surprised that there's such a great interest uh, for this event, because <coughs> labor mobility is indeed a key issue within the European Union, but also in particular with the, with the United Kingdom, uh, how the relationship will evolve uh, after UK has left the EU, which is still an unknown time an unknown date from now, and we do not yet know uh, the policy of the government. There have been many, many research studies uh, which concluded that in the past, labor mobility was very beneficial for the United Kingdom. Uh, it contributed a lot to um, economic growth. Uh, it contributed a lot to <coughs> fiscal revenues and so on. Uh, but clearly, labor mobility was also one of the key issues in the Brexit debate, if not the biggest issue. Now, <clears throat> how important this factor was, probably our panelists will, will tell us. Uh, <clears throat> if you just look at the statistics, then we can see that uh, in areas when there are more migrants, the share of leave votes was in fact lower than in areas when there are much fewer migrants, uh, suggesting that it was more a kind of fear from immigration uh, than the actual presence of, of immigrants which boosted, boosted votes. And just let me also mention that uh, I also made some estimates uh, to explain which factors contributed to leave votes. And when we control for other factors, <coughs> such as age, education, uh, Scotland, Northern Ireland, London, and, and other issues, then uh, the share of immigrants was, in fact, not at all significant. So how it contributed to, <coughs> to the leave votes, that's still uh, uh, an unknown issue, but clearly this was a very prominent issue in the Brexit debate, uh, and now it will be even more prominent, in my view, uh, <clears throat> on what kind of new relationship the EU27 will establish with the United Kingdom. And we are completely in the dark, I have to say. I mean, we hear different comments from, from here and there. Let me just read <coughs> a statement that uh, uh, <coughs> uh, David Davis, the UK Secretary of State for Brexit has just said yesterday, which was much more a kind of a softer option. Uh, so he said that he would be in favor of ending free movement as it has operated before, but we don't do so in a way that it is contrary to the national and economic interest. Britain must win the global battle for talent. No one wants to see labor shortages in key sectors. So again, if the... Uh, I mean, the, the, the State Secretary for Brexit has such you know, comments that indeed suggest that labor mobility will not be completely stopped on the day when uh, the UK will leave, but we still do not really know uh, what will happen, and that's why we are very pleased to have three distinguished panelists with us uh, to share their thoughts with us on the, on the topic. <clears throat> Let me briefly introduce them in alphabetic order. <clears throat> So, <clears throat> Lindsay Barras is a director uh, at Price Waterhouse Coopers, and in particular, director in, in global immigration practice, and she worked a lot on, on immigration issues. Then, Jonathan Portas, <clears throat> who is a research fellow at the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, and also a senior fellow uh, in the UK in Changing Europe, 
And I also would like to mention that previously <coughs> he was a chief economist at the UK Cabinet Office. And uh, Klaus F. Zimmermann uh, has so many positions that it would be difficult to list. So I only list the two, two of his current positions. So <coughs> he is a visiting professor at Princeton University, um, but also the co-director <coughs> for the Center of Population Development and Labor Economics uh, at the United Nations University Maastricht Economic and Social Research Institute on Innovation and Technology. Uh, but he has so many, many other positions and, and such a distinguished scholar of, of various labor issues. So we saw that uh, the order in which our panelists will speak, so we, we'd start with, with, with Jonathan Portas. He will, he will um, share some presentation slides with us. Then uh, Lindsay Berry, and then um, Mr. Zimmerman. And we asked each panelist to speak about seven, eight minutes. Then we have a little bit of discussion within ourselves, and then we open the floor for questions and comments. So, Jonathan, the, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Walt, and thank you very much for inviting me. I will uh, race through uh, what is, a, of course, a, uh, um, uh, a huge amount of uh, uh, material. Let me turn it. You should point that window. Yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, oops, I think I've gone on too far already. Um, let me. Uh, Okay, well, uh, um, can we have the, the first slide? Yes, yeah. right, so. okay. Um, that's a, that looks like the first one. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk briefly um, about both the um, economics of uh, labor mobility and what the implications might be of uh, reductions in, uh, uh, um, in labor mobility after Brexit for the UK, um, and then on what the parameters of a new system like look like and some of the key issues that, that are likely to emerge. Um, so first of all, this uh, uh, follows on very much from what Zwolf was saying. What is it, uh, what, why are we here? What caused uh, Brexit? And you know, there's a huge literature on this already, which Zwolf has, as he says, contributed. Um, so I'm not going to answer, but I think um, the important thing to, to, that, that I would take away from this is that, look, it was immigration, but it's immigration as part of a whole wider set of attitudes and values uh, relating in to both the economic and social uh, uh, um, uh, aspects of globalization. So if you look at the bottom, what that says is that if you thought immigration was a bad thing, um, then you almost certainly voted to leave. And similarly, if you, think, if, you thought immigration, if you think immigration is a good thing, you almost certainly voted to stay. Um, but the same thing applies to things which are, which are perhaps less relevant directly to the European Union, such as multiculturalism. Indeed, um, if you look at attitudes to the death penalty, for example, which has absolutely nothing to do with the European Union, frankly, it's not even a really a political issue in the UK anymore. But still, your view on the death penalty is almost a perfect predictor of which way you voted. So there's a whole set of uh, attitudes and values that underlie the vote. Okay, next slide, if I can. Sorry, oh, oh, so now I've gone on too far. Uh, that's better. Um, okay, so this merely, this simply shows the uh, uh, um, the, the rapid growth of uh, uh, of EU nationals in the UK labour market. 
Um, I think this is, you know, th this will come as no surprise to anybody. Um, it's been, uh, um, you know, we all know that, that it grew, started to grow rapidly in 2004 after accession. But the interesting thing is that the upward growth resumed again very soon after the end of the financial crisis. Um, and then it took yet another turn upwards in, in 2013 with the accession of, with, with the ending of transitional controls on Bulgaria and Romania. This is really quite rapid change in a very short time. Um, and as Walt says, we also know quite a lot about the direct economic impacts on, on labor markets. They've largely been benign. Uh, you, you migrants are largely working age, they're in work, they're relatively well educated, although they're mostly working in low-skilled jobs. There are clearly pressures on local services and some congestion effects. Um, but overall, um, it's difficult to find any uh, evidence of really significant negative impacts. Working just a moment. Yeah, um, what's the uh, um, impact then of reductions in migration on the UK economy? Um, well, this is uh, this table comes from the Office of Budget Responsibilities Autumn Statement Forecast, which was uh, released just last week, um, and uh, uh, I'm not going to go through it in detail. What they're essentially saying is that. Uh, um, uh, that under their forecast, which is a relatively optimistic one compared to the pre-referendum pre forecast released by the Treasury, the IMF, and the OECD, that uh, um, leaving the EU will worsen the, the, um, uh, the UK fiscal accounts by a little under 1% uh, um, uh, uh, of uh, GDP by the end of the, this parliament. Um, but interestingly, um, and again, it's slightly in contrast to the, uh, um, the analyses produced by the Treasury et al., which really paid no attention to immigration at all. They looked solely at the trade impact. Um, the impact of lower migration is almost as large as the impact of lower trade and hence lower productivity growth. So from the uh, point of view of the official UK government forecaster, immigration is going to have the, a reduction in immigration. And this reduction in immigration, by the way, is... is, is a relatively small one resulting primarily from sort of a wider economic effects and anticipation of Brexit rather than Brexit per se. But even that modest reduction is likely to have a significant uh, uh, negative impact on the UK fiscal accounts. Um, what about the longer term impacts? Um, well, I think, you know, there is not as nearly as large a literature on the longer-term impacts of, uh, uh, of immigration on uh, um, growth and productivity as there is on trade. But um, there, uh, there is a very interesting recent paper which appeared in the uh, um, October uh, economic outlook from the World Economic Outlook from the IMF, um, which looked at the longer-term impacts on growth, growth, GDP per capita, and productivity of migration. This is Jaumot et al., um, which showed um, the impact, actually very large impacts, um, that a 1% increase in the migrant share translated to approximately a 2% increase in productivity. And this was robust to a variety of specifications. So if these estimates are to be believed, then immigration is really quite a big part of the growth story uh, for developed countries. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's likely to be particularly relevant in the UK case. So these are effects which are actually comparable to the sort of effects you see from from trade flows. Um, and what that suggests is that, that a reduction in openness resulting from the UK leaving the EU on the trade and migration side is likely to lead to quite significant long-term macro impacts. Um, if that's true, that's something we really should be quite, uh, quite worried about. 
Um, so I'm now going to turn to the sort of policy choices that, that, that the UK faces as we try and work out what a new system would look like. As well says, we don't really, the government has, you know, we don't know what the, 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 the UK's position is because the government doesn't have a position yet. Um, they're trying to work it out on the hoof. Uh, you know, uh, uh, um, David Davis, I think, was making it up as he went along yesterday. Other ministers have been doing it, uh, doing this, the same thing. Um, but even before that, I would just like to highlight this issue, which was in the press la uh, just recently because of the remarks, or in fact the letter uh, um, that President Tusk sent to a group of British parliamentarians about the status of UK citizens in the EU and vice versa. Um, I don't, I'm not actually going to get into the politics of the negotiation of this. I just want to make the point, which I think it's important for people in Brussels to realize, that this, for the UK, this is an incredibly complicated and difficult issue, even once we decide what the policy is. Why is that? Well, it's because unlike many European countries, we don't have a population register, and we don't really count people coming into or out of the country. This means that we actually do not know, we know there are about roughly three million EU citizens resident in the UK, we think. But that's survey data. We don't know who they are. We don't have names, addresses. We don't have times that they entered the country. Um, so setting up a system, supposing that we do decide that we want to give all or the vast majority of those citizens permanent resident in the UK, the bureaucratic, administrative, and legal mechanisms with which to do that have not even begun to be developed. So this is really a huge problem for the UK. Uh, um, a similar, but I suspect not quite as serious problems will, uh, will, will uh, exist in respect of UK citizens resident in, in, in other European countries. But you know, this issue is really a very big one, even if the politics of it can be sorted out. Um, what about a new system? Um, I mean, I think you know, we do not know where the government's going, but I think for me, it's helpful to uh, um, conceptualize this along two dimensions. There's the hard to soft option, and there's the liberal, hard to soft Brexit option, and there's the liberal to restrictive option. Um, and these are, if not quite orthogonal, actually quite different. Um, so at one end on the hard Brexit option is a system where we treat Europeans the same as non-Europeans in future. They have to go through exactly the same hoops. At the other end, is a system which looks very much like free movement does now, with perhaps some, uh, um, some tweaks around the edges. That is to say, emergency break provisions or a, a relatively high overall quota. Where I suspect we will end up, uh, um, and this is sort of what David Davis says, is somewhat in the middle, some sort of intermediate option, some, some European preference, some quotas and other restrictions, some sector-specific schemes. Um, the interesting thing about that, again, is perhaps that actually um, from a legal and administrative point of view, a system in the middle is probably the most difficult one to implement, the most difficult one to devise, and possibly the most bureaucratic one, actually, to, uh, uh, to enforce. Um, it may be the best we can do, um, but again, one shouldn't over, overestimate, uh, underestimate the obstacles. Then the second dimension is the overall choice between a liberal system and a restrictive system. This is not the same dimension. It's quite possible to have a hard Brexit, non-discrimination, and a very liberal system, uh, a la Canada, for example. That may not be where the, this current government, the May government, which is on the more restrictive end, is going, but these are two separate dimensions. The UK could remain a relatively liberal open economy from the point of view of migration and still have a hard Brexit with no European preference. That is not a, an impossible choice, although it's not a politically likely one at the moment. 
I'm not going to. Um, there's only one more slide. Um, so uh, 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 I've only got one more slide anyway, I think. So uh, and I pretty much remember what was on it. Um, so uh, yes, um, just to remind myself, just in case there's a slide that I haven't for, that I've forgotten. But I think the the. Uh, um, 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 the, the second point, and this is really, again, very important in the UK context, is that for the UK, ending free movement is not about border control. It is, you know, we will not, under any plausible scenario, I do not see us imposing visa restrictions on UK, EU nationals. Everyone in this room will still be able to show up um, at the Eurostar, show their passport. You might have to get it stamped in future, but basically the process will be the same. We're still going to let everybody in. Um, we will control, if we end free movement, we'll be controlling free movement in the workplace. It will be the rights to work of European nationals and also the right to claim benefits and possibly access some other services that will be restricted, not their right to enter the country. Just as we do, that's the way we control free movement for Americans at the moment, actually, or, or Australians. Um, and that's really important. This is not about border controls for us. This is about what happens, primarily what happens in workplaces. Um, and that means, again, that, that, you know, that, that is going to lead to a significant uh, increase in illegal working, increase in regulatory burdens, increase in bureaucracy of the size of the state, um, and, and something that will affect lots of British people as well as uh, and British employers and businesses. It's not just going to be at the borders. And again, that the economic impacts of that and how that affects the UK flexible labour market are likely to be quite uh, quite significant. So um, that's a very quick tour de raison of the, uh, the issues. Um, I hope I've given some sense of just how formidable the challenges are, not just from the point of view of the UK trying to negotiate this in Europe, but simply of trying to implement this in a way which minimizes the damage to the UK uh, economy and labor market. Thank you. Thanks very much. <coughs> Let me have just, just one short, short follow-up question. You, you, I mean, touched that you believe that both skilled and, and high-skilled and low-skilled yeah. immigration will be, will be somehow reduced. Uh, some politicians argue that the primary aim is to reduce low-skilled immigration, but they were happy to have, you know, finance professionals or, you know, Japanese uh, <coughs> entrepreneurs and, and so on. So in, in your view, if there really this little bit skill-based system, uh, mainly, you know, slowing down unskilled immigration but letting high-skilled immigration to come to the UK, what, what that mix could, could impact on? on the UK growth well, and public finances. Well, I think the important thing to remember is you, know, you can't control low-skill immigration without controlling high-skill immigration, right? Because in order to, you know, you say you want a skill-based system, that means people have to prove they're skilled. Means that, and Lindsay knows far about this more, means that people have to ju jump through some set of bureaucratic and legal and administrative hoops in order to prove that they're high-skilled or doing a high-skilled job or earning enough money or whatever. So that in itself is a barrier. Um, moreover, people are not just workers in the workplace, they also have other, uh, uh, other rights, other needs, they have spouses, children, and they may have long-term plans. At the moment, you know, European Union citizens can come to the UK and for all intents and purposes be treated just exactly the same as Brits, right? They do not have to worry about any of these things. Um, even if it's, you know, it will probably be relatively easy for most of the people in this room who are non-UK citizens to come, if they have a job that they want to come to, to come to the UK. But the attractiveness of so doing, 
but after jump through these hoops, they'll have to take all these other things into account. You know, what, you know, suppose my kids do grow up in the UK, what does that mean? What are their long-term future? What's my, uh, what's my spouse going to do? All of these things uh, um, act as barriers to migration uh, uh, um, or labor mobility, which currently don't exist. Good point. <clears throat> now, Lindsay, please. <clears throat> Um, so I'm going to start by saying that I have a tendency to talk quietly, so if you can't hear me at the back, do say, and I will try and talk up. Um, just to pick up on one of the points uh, that Jonathan just made, which I think is really pertinent, which is about the reasons why people come to the UK. And I think it's really important when thinking about what's going to happen post-Brexit is to recognise that there are different ways that people access the UK labour market. If you look at the last set of net migration figures, not the ones that were published like yesterday, but the set before that, um, about half of that net migration figures were EU nationals, and about half of those were people who came who didn't already have a job before they came to the UK. So those were people who decided that they wanted to come live in the UK and then were going to access the labour market. I think, realistically, you know, as Jonathan has said, those people who a particular company in the UK identifies, you know, you here and say, I'd really like you to come to the UK, we can show that you're highly skilled. That type of movement is likely to still be fairly flexible, although um, there are you know, some uh, administration around that, and I'll explain again why that is quite challenging for the UK relative to the rest of Europe. But the idea that somebody could move to the UK and then decide I'm going to try and find a job I think is probably something that's going to be much harder, even if you are on the highly skilled end of um, the range. And part of the reason for that is something that, you know, again, Jonathan's touched on, is how we police our borders. So in the rest of Europe, predominantly, you enter and then you have to demonstrate that you are, for example, exercising your treaty rights, either by registering at a town hall or through your proof of your working and asso associating that with tax number. We do most of our controls at the border. So when you first enter, you'll talk to an immigration officer if you're not an EU national I'll ask you what you're doing, or it's done at, if you're not an EU national, it's done at uh, a, an embassy before you come over. It is going to be pretty much impossible for us to be making those decisions at the point of entry. So it's not like you can turn up and say, here's my CV and my degree certificate, and I'm very skilled, please let me in and have access to the EU, because if nothing else, the queues will be very long, and everyone will get very angry about not being able to you know, quickly get through passport control. So from an administrative point of view, it's, it's likely that a process will need to be conducted in your home country to, at the embassy or high commission to, for them to make that decision before you come through. So that will be a massive change already for the, in comparison to what's happening now. I think we do a lot of work with PwC with businesses, and there's a lot of focus on this idea around kind of high and low skilled, but there's actually another group that's just as important and what we would call middle skilled people. So these are not people who may be deemed low-skilled and not agricultural workers or people who are going to work in shops, for example. But they wouldn't meet the current UK immigration rules to be deemed skilled if they weren't EU nationals. To give you a really good example, we um, have done a lot of work with the pharma industry, and they're particularly worried about lab techs. So they wouldn't qualify under the current UK immigration rules, but they wouldn't definitely not be deemed low-skilled. And I think that where the government is moving to on low-skilled is some kind of temporary arrangement. So is it realistic to ask a business to invest in 
training someone up who could only be with them for example nine months if they're working at a shop maybe you might be prepared to make that investment but if they're a lab tech and you have to train them and invest in that training and then you know they're going to go after nine months even if they're available to you it might not be an economically viable option so there's a whole range of other sort of levers that are playing into this kind of picture that we're going to end up with that adds to the complexity that Jonathan's already talked about in terms of the government, which is some of the practical considerations of how does business deal with that. And in some of those conversations we've been having with business, a lot of them are very reliant on EU migration. So one company we spoke to, 80% of their workforce are EU migrants that they recruit already when they're in the UK. So these are people who've chosen to come to work in the UK and then they've hired them. Now, for them to make a fundamental change in their recruitment process is going to be hard for them to do that. The UK unemployment figures are such that actually the people who are unemployed are either people who are predominantly not skilled, and therefore investment needs to be made to skill those people up even to a basic level, or maybe people who are on there because they have a disability and find accessing the labour market harder. So it's not like there's a ready pool of three and a half million people to replace those EU migrants. And even if you say, okay, the ones that are here now can stay, you might be prepared to work in a shop for minimum wage when you're 18. You're probably not going to be prepared to do that when you're 40. So again, that's, that pool will change significantly. And it's those businesses, how do they deal with that? How do they start planning when they don't know how um, the system's going to be? to start thinking about where possibly could they recruit um, alternative. And the reality is they may have to still recruit migrants, but it will be different migrants. So it might be that they will access, we have in the UK a youth mobility scheme where we encourage people from Australia and New Zealand and Canada to come. So maybe they target those individuals, but that's still migration. It's just a different form of migration. So it's not going to change those numbers um, fundamentally in terms of that. I think um, just one final point, though, to say on, on this is really just, again, reiterating how complicated all of this is. And I think, it, you know, the government are spending a lot of time trying to think about the different options, and we're, we're um, you know, lots of companies are trying to help them with that and think about those different implications for business. But it's not just essentially going to be something that we decide, because obviously whatever proposals we want to put in place to a certain extent, are going to be subject to negotiation. So we can come up with an amazing scheme, but unfortunately, if everybody in the other EU 27 states says, okay, that's not enough, then how do we then find something that's a reasonable compromise? And the biggest challenge is that there's three factors driving those decisions. Obviously, there's what is going to be acceptable so that we can get a, a good trade deal. There's what's acceptable to the British public, because... You know, looking at some of the things like um, the emergency break and things like that, generally that wasn't well received by the British public. They will want to have something tangible that feels like an end to freedom of movement for them to feel like that Brexit has resulted in the change that they want. And then there's cost. So it's not just a case that we have a different border system. Frankly, we don't have a huge amount of money to be spending on reinventing an entirely new immigration system either at this point. And you know, with, with the economics that Jonathan touched on, it's not like suddenly that money is going to be there. So that's a really hard um, sort of you know matrix to try and come up with a system, and that's part of why the government haven't yet 
said, this is the solution, because it's an incredibly complex, moving beast, really. Many thanks. Just, just one question to you too. I mean, you, you mentioned that a key factor will be what will be acceptable yes. to the general public. Mm. But the big question is, is how to measure that. Yeah. I mean, if you look at you know, the votes, I mean, there was this narrow margin for leave. Yeah. Uh, many people were, remained at home and didn't vote. Yeah. So how to measure what, or how to assess uh, what, what could, be, could be reasonable for, for the general public in your view? Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges. And there's a lot, been a huge amount of focus post the vote on immigration and controlling immigration as if the Brexit vote was just about immigration. And the reality is, you know, as Jonathan showed, it was about a range of issues. So actually, it's not just around that that you know the government needs to engage. There has been huge amounts of studies, and all of those studies have predominantly shown that migration contributes to the economy, that contributes to society. The British public generally either don't see that information or don't actually believe that information when it's presented to them, unfortunately. Um, and, it, you know, and the press don't help generally in the way that they present um, that information in the UK. So it will have to be something that feels very, very like the end of freedom move movement. So something like saying, well, before you need to come to the UK, you need a visa, might feel like freedom of movement is end, even if essentially that's just an administrative process. But it's something that they can, you know, they c not knowing how the immigration system works, they can say, that's a change. I voted for change, and I can see now that, you know, a Romanian can't just come and take my job, which is the kind of the perception that some of them have. Many thanks. Klaus, um, please. Thank you very much. Well, first I have to give my presentation, but I may start with uh, the remark that, uh, oh, oh, this was not the first one. OK, I, I managed to. <laughs> I should have helped you earlier. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, first I would argue that uh, I bring in now in this debate a kind of non-British uh, perspective because we have two Brits sitting here, and uh, I'm, since I'm, I'm, I'm a, I was born in Germany, I, I travel a lot <laughs> through Europe these days, uh, talking about similar issues, um, and uh, I live in the US. Um, I would argue uh, this is not a British issue uh, here, what we are looking at. We have a global change, a global change in uh, how to deal with politics and how to see things. Uh, there was a long time a trend that more globalism, more global uh, developments are good, and we, we move together, and we interact, we want to be mobile, and, and so on. We, at the moment, we see the opposite. Uh, countries want to be homogeneous, ethnically homogeneous, whereas at the same time, we see that we become more multi-ethnic globally. Uh, it will become more relevant. Now, so we, we, we go against reality, what we are, see, we are seeing. So uh, uh, while the EU Commission heavily thinks about how evidence-based policymaking should become the real practice in all European uh, countries, uh, well, the trend which we see everywhere is a trend to evidence-free policymaking. <laughs> evidence-free policymaking, well, it's not a joke. It's very serious. I think, uh, uh, well, it's, I mean, it's, of course, it's a heart of politics because politics is about preferences, about redistribution, not about optimization. And uh, to, to act according to your preferences uh, is something what is, what is easy and, and, and nice to do. Um, so 
the problem as scientists uh, who provide facts, and there's absolutely no big disagreement among scientists about what the facts are. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to disagree uh, on the facts uh, on migration in, in Europe, in the United States, or anywhere else. It's, it's very similar debates. So, uh, uh, so the question is only how long can reality move away from the facts? Of course it can, because if you have lots of welfare, lots of output, you can say, I want to have a party, and I want to spend it. And uh, as long as it's not too going too bad, uh, it is, is not, might be not so much of a problem. It's a, it's a right of people to be less efficient, to be less, have less output, less to dist redistribute. That's, that's, that's the kind of thing. On the other hand, there will be less output in Europe. There will be a damage to the United Kingdom. Uh, those people who, in the rural areas, and similar in the US, who uh, thought that um, it's globalization and the, and the migrants who have caused their relative poor position, um, uh, we will maybe tomorrow find out that it was not the European Commission who has produced, uh, it was other things. And then maybe the, the, the climate might change, but uh, uh, this will take a while. So I think the, the issue how to deal with the whole thing is maybe uh, not so much that, I mean, we, we can go very deep into bureaucratics. I mean, the commission has to do it, and the, the British government, and so on. But those others, we, I'm one of the others, I would take more a wait-and-see position. Let me start with that, and then quickly go through a few slides, and then come to some more clear conclusions. And, okay, so... I agree with lots of the facts, and my recent book here on labor migration, EU enlargement, and the Great Recession, I think you have a chapter in it, yes, uh, we have for years produced evidence that it was beneficial, not only to the UK, and those like Germany who have refused to open up early, yes, we did exactly what you, we said, oh, we only want the good ones, yes, and, uh, but, uh, and we left the, the border clo uh, closed, and what, what, what the evidence was, well, the bad ones came, and the good ones went to the United States or to the UK at that time. Yes, um, and, uh, and now we learn from this in the wrong in the wrong way. So it's exactly what what we should remember and and know. So mobility in Europe was always an issue. We have not enough mobility. So migration, I mean, it, it, as you show, it's not the. I mean, uh, the people from Africa who are bothering the United Kingdom, like Switzerland, it's the Germans or the Poles or the Romanians or whatever. Yes, the Germans uh, are also a problem for the United Kingdom. And I don't think that, that this is against all what uh, decades was on, uh, was on the vision and the horizon of the European Union. We have just to realize that. And I, I may also remind us that it's only one of the many issues we have, not the internal migration. Yes, we have uh, the welfare migration debate, which, which was, by the way, is a similar kind of thing since, since years. Also in Germany, every year we had a debate about, oh, we have welfare migration. And when we asked where are the facts, nobody could show the facts. But, but next year it came again. Uh, so we, we have not an issue of real uh, um, uh, facts. We have that, that, that feelings uh, are used and misused for policy making. And uh, that is, the, I think, the key issue. Uh, uh, of course, there are, if you look at channels, yes, differences between refugees, uh, family reunification, and employment, or study uh, uh, channels uh, and the performance. And uh, of course, there are differences, and we, we may want to uh, moderate and, 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 and allocate uh, migrants uh, better. But uh, the key element of an optimal, efficient, and also socially acceptable 
uh, allocation of migrants is that there, there is free mobility. As soon as you have restricted mobility, you will end typically in, in a much worse situation than otherwise. That is at least what we have seen in many uh, experiences. So, for instance, inequality is, 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 well, inequality is not rising with high, uh, a larger share of foreign labor. It's, it's going down. That's what the OECD evidence shows on this graph. So, uh, um, the facts are, so to speak, at odds. So, what we have at the moment uh, really is, and uh, the attitude studies, which are available, uh, shows that a bit. Um, we have, why are sentiments against migrants? It's first, you have said that at the beginning, it's not where people know migrants. So, there are not many migrants, we have a lot of resistance. Uh, it's about not knowing about the advantages. And so it's, uh, uh, when we look at the, it's, it's, it, yeah, there's racism perhaps or, or other cultural uh, differences and feelings, but the major part is a misunderstanding of the economic benefits by, by, by a large part of the population uh, uh, which is present. And that's the same not only in Europe, but also in the United States, as a recent uh, study has shown. So it's, it's a very global situation we are looking at. So at the end, we are, at the end, we are more or less uh, in the question, how, how can uh, and how long can the public debate be so different from reality? And how, when the constraints in the long term work, uh, to what extent can we uh, uh, can can this can this go on? So now uh, let me kind of summarize and say uh, there are I mean four issues I would like to bring into this debate. I mean there's this debate now can 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 the UK be half in or half out? Yes, I mean yeah, yeah we could, we move out with with mobility, but the rest we have. That, that's what what Switzerland uh, what Switzerland also wanted. And uh, but if this starts then the whole EU will break into pieces, and uh, then we will end with, with nation states. And that's my prediction. And I'm a little bit more skeptical than others that uh, the EU will, uh, if you have passed next Sunday, uh, um, uh, be uh, the same and will, will stabilize. Uh, now, others have said, and before the Brexit decision, I had also written that, well, wonderful, if the UK goes out, then maybe we have a, the UK always wanted just a trade zone, yes, be, let's be honest. Uh, they never wanted to have a real unification of Europe. Uh, that's why we could go better on. So, well, maybe this is a time of a fresh start, we could argue, yes, that's one, one possibility. Let, let Britain go and let maybe others also follow, <laughs> if possible also Greece, and uh, so we get rid of a few problems, um, and, and, and so on. But, but the question is, is this really true? And if you look at the, these arguments here, we have other problems. Uh, when the UK is leaving, then another uh, country who has a closer stability policy position than the Germans and the, 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 the Dutch is, is, is gone. So there is another reason why to disagree and, and to destabilize. So it's not very likely um, uh, that uh, we will go, will end there with a, with a better with a better European Union. We, we were hoping, I mean, I was writing articles before the Brexit decision where the proposition was let's, before the Brits this, decide to go out, uh, uh, let's uh, let's start a renegotiation process, uh, which will take for many years and uh, maybe help us to get into better times. But uh, it was too fast. What uh, uh, policy policymakers were too fast. Now, uh, my my third conclusion then is well, as you see on on that, Britain has to reconsider. Uh, yes, we have just to wait a little bit. Uh, I mean, there is no there is no legal, so far understand, need for the UK to execute this. Uh, 
this decision. And I still think uh, that's what the UK should do. And responsible members of the parliament would say, well, we, we seek the next election. We say we don't want this. And if then the, the, the parliament would be re-elected with a new majority in favor of a real Brexit, well, then we have to go ahead. But let's, let's I mean, be like a little bit, learn a little bit from the Greeks, yes? <laughs> say, say A and uh, do B. Um, uh, well, that's often in policy making the case. Uh, well, uh, my last, and uh, well, the EU, the EU Commission uh, has, to, has to now decide, or the other members of the European Union, should we negotiate with the UK about something like, uh, well, half in, half out? And I say there is no way. Uh, there can only be no, and uh, I mean I would very, very much urge those people who are in the room who are in favor of, uh, of stabilizing Europe, uh, we have to say who wants to leave really has to leave with all consequences. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you very much. <coughs> on, on this last point, I also recall Angela Merkel saying that in the Brexit negotiations, she will also look at the interest of, of German industry. And uh, <clears throat> why on the French side, we currently we see much, much hardliner uh, <clears throat> options. So again, it's difficult to see what the European strategy will be and, and what, what's, what's, what's your likely view. So do you think, I mean, I, I agree, understand that you prefer to have a very you know, strict view in Europe for freedom or nothing else. But do you think that this will be the likely outcome of the European strategy or will there be more readiness for certain compromises like, you know, let the trade Let's have a free trade zone and you know, certain limitations on immigration. I would argue uh, there will be a long uh, way to go. And uh, muddling through, we know this, there will be lots of meetings, uh, endless <laughs> meetings, uh, uh, which, uh, which have compromises, which then will be, will be changed again. So I, um, I don't see that we will, will soon get to a, cl a clear yes, a friendly yes to the UK, but uh, also, there will be not a, a very quick no. I agree uh, on that. Okay. So thanks very much. Now let, let me open the floor for, for questions and, and comments. Uh, I ask you that first introduce yourself and try to be brief, if possible, so that as many of you as would like to able, will be able to ask questions. So <clears throat> I already see <coughs> Francesco Papadia, <coughs> who is <coughs> a non-resident at Bruegel. So let me introduce you directly. Uh, yeah, you have introduced me, so I don't have to do it. Um, my question is methodological, uh, in the sense that from your presentation, we get the proof that economically we cannot understand what is taking place. I mean, this is people who is damaging itself from an economic point of view. Uh, and this is Trump, uh, this is uh, Brexit, uh, probably tomorrow uh, it will be Italy, and, 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 and going on. Uh, so then what do we do? Uh, we just wait for people to learn the lesson uh, and uh, suffer the, the consequences of their choices, but this may take very long uh, and may be very dangerous. So what can we rational people do? Uh, I think we have to get to, to a higher level of rationality, so to say, where we do not take only economic factors into uh, account, but we, we try and, and, and go further and understand what is leading to this. I mean, death penalty is the most important explanation of Brexit. Uh, 
what do we do with this? Uh, how do we manage? Uh, how do we manage uh, this? I mean, I think that this is a big, big challenge for social scientists uh, to, to, to move away from, from their own field uh, and, and, again, get to, to a higher level of rationality, so to say. Thank you. Thank you. Um, maybe <coughs> Mr. Zimmerman would like to react quickly. Yeah, I think you, you, have, you have, I think, in my view, this is a key point, uh, yes. But the question is, the question is, it's not a higher level of rationality. It has to be a lower level or a different level of rationality. It, what is missing is uh, that people, uh, that we reach the heart of people, yes? We come with arguments. Um, but people decide on, on, on emotions. There was a time where Europe was an issue of emotions. And we came with arguments and combined it. And then uh, people were willing to suffer. Remember, when the Maastricht Treaty was signed, some member states uh, wrote articles on this. Yes, I mean, uh, there's evidence that people were willing to suffer. Well, Europe was more popular. Reforms were, more, were done more radical. Uh, but this is long time over because we somehow lost the the connection to the hearts of people. That's why uh, we have to, uh, to to bring up maybe evidence, but which which has some human faces. Yes. So as like with when we, we talk about migration, if we know people who are migrants, yes, then we know that most of them are very useful <laughs> and very very nice people, and like we all are. Yes. And uh, and so this has to come. This has to come over. I mean, maybe it's too simple, uh, but but I think it's a key point. We need to have emotions in this debate. As well, so one of the things that was interesting pre the Brexit vote, so before the Scotland referendum, right at the end when it looked like it was a much closer vote whether or not Scotland would leave the UK, a lot of business spoke out, and there was a lot of backlash against some of those businesses for speaking out to say you should remain. People were like, "Well, why are you, you know, as a business, um, you know, putting your opinion on me? Uh, you know, what what to do?" And therefore, I feel that like a lot of businesses didn't want to speak out and say they were pro-Remain or pro-Leave before the Brexit vote. It is businesses' responsibility, if they're going to benefit from migration, to also speak out and to explain the benefits of that. And I think, generally, they haven't done that. They're willing to sort of complain when it's difficult, but they're not willing to sort of put their hand in there and say, you know, the reasons why we want migrants are, yes, about filling skills gap, but actually it's more than that. We want to have a, you know, a more cult, uh, you know, a more diverse culture. We think it adds, it contributes to our business. It helps us develop, you know, new ideas. That message isn't really out there in the public. No one has that discussion and the debate, and I do think the business needs to take that stand. With both Klaus and Lindsay, I guess what I would two things. First, one is a negative. One thing we do know reasonably well from the social scientists that simply having people like Klaus and me lecture them about uh, uh, um, what econometric analysis says about the labour market impact of immigration doesn't work. Uh, unfortunately, much as I wish it did, and much as I've tried, um, uh, uh, except with people, a relatively small set of people who are already in that rational space, uh, um, it doesn't work. Um, so, uh, I mean, I agree, you, you, one does need to, as, as Lindsay says, you do need the different messengers. Um, I do think, uh, though, in, in terms, as well as leadership from politicians in business, which I think is absolutely essential, um, uh, and more contact. One also, you know, people do need um, 
it's not just a question of leaving people to be confronted by you know, the hard realities in due course over five or 10 or 15 years, which as, I, as you imply, could end up with that. You know, we, we did that in the 1930s, and people did indeed learn their lesson in the end, but it wasn't necessarily the best way of going about it. Um, uh, people do need, and, and I think this, from, from my point of view, that you know, when, when I've, my attempt to convince people to notice death was to sort of confront people with the, the hard choices that are, 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 are implicit here. So, and on this, I think what Klaus says, well, you know, essentially the EU has to tell the UK, you know, this is the way the world works. You have to make, you, you are entitled to make a choice, but you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't have everything. And actually, confronting uh, the British people and the British political establishment with that will, I think, in due course lead to, uh, um, uh, you know, I don't know whether it will change people's minds or change our decisions, but at least will instill a greater sense of realism. And I think there are perhaps some initial signs of that beginning to percolate through, um, as some of the people who made completely absurd claims during the campaign are now having to confront the reality of actually trying to, to, to implement those claims. If I may have a, a follow-up question before giving you the floor. The question is, why now? I mean, the world has been similarly globalized five, seven, six years ago when the whole world was hit by a big financial crisis. Many people became unemployed. So why didn't we see this huge rise of, of populism and, and anti-establishment, anti-immigration developments at that time? Why do we see it in, in around the current years? So what's, what's, what's your view on that? I think there's a huge amount of people who, for whatever reason, don't, haven't seen the sort of the upturn since the last economic crisis and actually don't see any change in their lifestyle or their kind of, you know, their economic situation. And it's not particularly clear why that particular group don't feel that. But I definitely think that's a change um, that's happened in the last couple of years. That group have kind of definitely started to feel more and more vocally said, you know, actually, you know, I'm working longer, longer hours. I don't feel like anything's changing for me or for my children. So I don't, yeah, I think that's a, that's a difficult one, but I definitely think that's a sort of unique group that's emerged over the last couple of years. I think that's probably right. I mean, look, we've had, we had nasty recessions in the UK in, the 19, in 1979 and 1987. In both cases, there were sharp rises in unemployment. But, you know, after two or three years, reco recovery came and real wage growth picked up quite rapidly, actually. Um, and never fell as much. Whereas here, we've had sort of seven or eight years of grinding, basically, you know, real wages still significantly below where they were in 2008. And, and so there's a bit of a, a drip, drip effect as opposed to, you know, when you have a sudden shock, people say, well, you, occasionally there are sudden shocks, there are recessions, and then there are recoveries. We had a recession, we've had a recovery, but we haven't seen what we normally experience after a recovery for a lot of people, as Lindsay yeah. says. It's interesting, actually, the wage differential in the UK is one of the highest in the EU, and I think that's definitely one of the impacts of why we voted to leave. So, what wage differential? So, the difference between the people who earn the lowest and the people who earn the highest, the UK has one of the highest differences. 
A perceived inequality is something which is uh, not always real. It's a generalizing inequality. Yeah. This, uh, this is not questionable. But then uh, it's, it's also the perceived inequality which plays a big role. Um, and this is a longer trend. On the other hand, also the mistrust in government per se has risen. It's not only the EU who is under uh, threat. It's also the national government. It's just, yeah. One just has to go around through the countries and count the number of parties who get reasonable vote, number of votes for, for, for the parliaments, and it, it has risen dramatically. So it's, it, uh, there's a general, in long-term trend, this combined with maybe the big recession, uh, which has uh, at least hold up uh, a general larger increase in, 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 in welfare, uh, uh, which may have then maybe disguised the other trends, is, is was adding uh, to it. So I don't think it's just, it's something we suddenly realize that it's everywhere, yes, but it's not that uh, this has just started yesterday. Uh, we have just not measured it right. Thank you. So let's continue the discussion. There's a question there. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Please. Yes, so my name is Andreas Huber. I work for the European Parliament, the Employment Committee. Um, I can't continue the discussion on the Gini coefficient. Maybe someone knows the Gini for uh, the UK. I had understood that Jonathan might give us the answer, perhaps as a specific Gini coefficient for UK nationals uh, without um, taking account of people who are not UK nationals. Perhaps that uh, gives some statistical evidence to what Lindsay said. But my question is, starting from your first graph, Jonathan, uh, where we saw that there are around 2.2 million EU citizens working in the UK. As far as I know, there are 3.2 million uh, EU citizens living in the UK. Uh, and I took it from your graph that there are 1.2 million non-EU third country citizens working in the UK. Now my question would is the following. If the UK leaves the European Union, um, then EU citizens, EU 20 citizen, 27 citizens would become third country nationals. Which formalities would they have to comply with to be allowed to stay in the United Kingdom and work there? Um, by definition, uh, UK is no longer than a member state. Regulation on social security coordination would not apply. There are some factors where automatically you see that there's a disincentive to staying in the United Kingdom. Uh, perhaps there are other factors like the bureaucracy. And, uh, I understood also that there's no population register, so it would be impossible to say you are here illegally, uh, you, have a f you have to leave the country, you have to be fined. But in theory, which would be the formalities for those 3.2 million EU <laughs> citizens illegal uh, to, ful <laughs> to fulfill in order to be allowed to stay there? Mm. And the background of the question is, of course, if there's a huge disincentive to stay in the UK, the EU27 member states would have to manage a reflux of population. And countries who had colonies know that this may be significant. Um, the short answer, you asked in theory what would be the formalities, so that's not really the question. The question is in practice what would be the formalities, and the answer is we don't know. There will have to be some form of you know, 
UK politicians have almost universally expressed a view that people who are here now in the UK now should be allowed to stay. Um, there will therefore have to be some sort of registration process. Uh, what that process will look like, where the people, the computers, the lawyers to administer it are going to come from, at the moment we have no idea. Uh, you know, at the, in the end, you know, we will, there will be a process and the vast majority of people will be offered the opportunity to register and stay because, you know, in the end we're a, we're a developed country and we can cope with this sort of thing if we have to. Um, but it is going to be very long and very, very messy indeed and very difficult. And at the moment, we have no idea. So there is a mechanism already to allow an EU national who's living in the UK to kind of demonstrate that they are exercising their treaty rights effectively. The process is very cumbersome. It takes about six months. And there was a study that said if every of those 3.2 million EU nationals applied, it would take 140 years to process all of those applications. So we're pretty confident they're not going to follow the current process. Um, they did introduce uh, very recently a small pilot scheme for people wanting to apply for permanent residence to be able to do it in a two-week process and then rapidly withdrew that and there's no news as to whether or not they plan to reintroduce that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that there has to be something because otherwise how do you demonstrate that an Italian who was living here before is that someone who was living here before. One thing that worries us, though, is that point about exercising your treaty rights. It isn't just a case that you can pitch up and you know, decide I'm going to live in the UK. There are things you're supposed to do. So students are the ones that probably worry us the most. They are supposed to have comprehensive health insurance, for example, to be deemed to be exercising your treaty rights. I think if we did a study of all the EU students who are in the UK, I'd be surprised how many of them have comprehensive health insurance, because certainly when I was a student, they wouldn't have even crossed my mind. And then when you then get through to the, OK, we're giving the right for people to remain if they've been exercising their treaty rights, is it fair to kick someone out who probably legitimately had no idea you were supposed to have this health insurance? Um, so then you get into that situation. There also isn't going to be a blanket you can just stay because the government will want to be able to remove criminals. So it is not going to be a case that they will say anybody who was here who can demonstrate that they were here before with no other conditions will be allowed to stay because they'll want the people in jail now, for example. Thank you. There's a question here. I see many, many hands. Kurt Geisert, Association of German SMEs. There's a recent uh, study by Bruegel <laughs> saying that after the referendum we can come uh, in a, into a situation where uh, the position of uh, Turkey and United Kingdom are not identical but in many senses uh, comparable. Not 100% uh, membership but as close as possible below 100% uh, possible. I would be interested to hear from you, uh, Jonathan uh, Potts, uh, a comment on that. Well, I mean, I, I, I've read the Bruegel paper, of course, um, and it's a useful contribution to the debate. I'm not sure how realistic it is at the moment on either side of the channel at the moment. Both, both parties seem to be quite a long way away from that. Um, uh, you know, as regards to the specific Turkey example, for, you know, I, I mean, uh, at the moment we seem to be intent, you know, the one thing that does seem to be reasonably clear, if not 
formally policy is that the UK will leave the customs union, which of course Turkey is a, is a member of because the UK wants the freedom to go off and negotiate its own trade deals with, uh, with India, for example, which hasn't gone very well so far. <laughs> uh, um, uh, no, I, I mean, you know, is it possible that we could more generally have some form of agreement which kept us as you know, a species of associate membership. Um, uh, I think that there are a lot of, you know, the, the, from the point of view of many of us in the UK, um, including many people who supported the Leave campaign but are not dogmatic, that would be highly desirable. Um, it, however, the public statements of the government so far, in particular Theresa May's statement that we couldn't be subject to ECJ jurisdiction, seem to preclude any sort of arrangement where effectively we, we sign up, you know, but I, you know for me, you know, the, the difference between associate membership and us leaving properly but having some, you know, a free trade agreement, perhaps some bilateral immigration agreement, to me the, the difference is that there is some sort of essentially treaty-based mechanism under which regulates our new form of association. You know, that, you know, even if it's not membership, it's still, you know, treaty-based and based in international law and, and justiciable under that. And it seems to me that that, at the moment, is too big a pill for, uh, for the current government or for the majority view on the Leave Camp to, to, to swallow. Will that change as reality sinks in? Possibly, but we're not there yet. That's my, pers my, my assessment at the moment. I don't know what... Marek Dabrowski. <clears throat> I have one question and one comment. The uh, question concerns um, how the uh, restriction on free movement, along with the living custom union, will impact the arrangement of the border between the Republic of Ireland mm -hmm. and Northern Ireland. I think this is quite a sensitive, important point. My comment relates to just a uh, discussion when you mentioned about increasing inequality. I think that the, the country like UK, which is has huge financial center and huge corporate headquarters center, on the one hand, and on the other hand, like in many other advanced economies, is probably increasing demand for also lower skilled, lower paid, labor, for example, for, for long-term care, etc. This is probably an everyday trend. It's, it's my perception, but maybe I am wrong. Border okay. between the two islands. Um, well, this is, uh, you know, in order to speak authoritatively on the Irish border, you really need to be an expert in, 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 in it's very detailed. My, my view, and I think this is what the experts would say, is that, you know, free movement is, le is actually less of a problem that's made out to be for the reason that I said before, that we won't really be controlling free movement at the border. You know, people from, from uh, Europe will still come in, you know, people talk about, oh, Ireland will be a backdoor to the UK. Well, people from the European Union will still be able to come in through the front door at, uh, um, at, at, you know, via Eurostar if they want. Um, they'll then be precluded from working legally unless they have the appropriate permissions, but, but I don't see that as the main problem. Uh, there are issues with respect to third country nationals who enter Ireland and then use the common travel area and there'll have to be some sort of co coordination for that, but I think there's a will to do that. The customs union is a much more serious issue. If we leave the customs union, 
then there has to be some sort of customs border between us and uh, between Northern and Southern Ireland, just as there's a customs border between, you know, there's a customs border with Switzerland, even though there's not really a people border with Switzerland between, you know, between France and ditto Sweden, Norway. Um, and uh, uh, that is uh, potentially quite a big issue. I just wanted to say, well, I mean, I agree with your mobility issue. I mean, the big entry uh, into, uh, into an island like the UK is that people come for holidays and then yes. stay overstay. Yeah, exactly. Even in the United States, that's an important thing. Yeah. Then we have still the internet and uh, other ways to work for British companies uh, on a different uh, level. So okay. I, uh, there will be, uh, it will be not as, as harsh as it looks like, but those yeah. I would argue those who are living currently in the UK, uh, who are from let's say, uh, from south of Europe, uh, some of them may 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 leave in, in yeah. Uh, yeah. Eastern yeah. Europeans and so on. Less students, uh, there would be an effect, uh, mo maybe more on the high skills than on the low skills. I would argue. Well, that's the risk. Um, we're already seeing the impact for um, agricultural workers. So we have a lot of people who come in and do seasonal agricultural work in the UK, predominantly from Bulgaria and Romania. In the last letter, lot of stats, they're actually struggling to fill quotas because people aren't coming. It's partly driven by the drop in the pound, but partly driven by Brexit. And this is before we actually leave. So you can already see the impact there. Okay. Now, I saw many hands uh, in, on there, so please... <coughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Alberto. Um, I have two questions. One is, what do you think? Do you think it's likely that the UK could have a different agree different agreements vis-à-vis -vis different European countries? So, for example, uh, more benevolent towards, say, France, and less benevolent towards, say, uh, Poland, for example. And secondly, what do you think uh, is likely to happen to Brits living in the European Union? Do you think it's possible that Brits will not be allowed to work in European Union countries? Do you think that might differ? By, by country, or what do you think? It's possible. <laughs> it's a good question, because it's actually a question we're asked a lot, um, and I don't think there's a clear answer, but I think there's a very real chance that you will have a different regime for Brits in every single EU country, because there will be no requirement to have the same. And if, if Britain chooses to have a different regime for different European Union countries, which is possible because you know, they're less worried about a French national, they're more worried about, unfortunately, a Bulgarian or Romanian or Polish national in terms of overstaying or working illegally. So they might have a different visa regime, and therefore would you have some kind of different visa regime back in terms of work and requirements for those countries as well? I think that's very likely. May I have a question or yeah. comment on that? I mean, uh, you know, there'd also be probably there will be a trade deal between mm -hmm. the UK and the EU, which, as, as we see, yeah. with the Canada deal, it has to be ratified by each country. Yeah. And if the UK would pick certain countries, let's say, more favorable to Germany than to Poland, then certain countries may simply block mm -hmm. the trade. So, don't you mm -hmm. think there is some kind of, you know, complementarity between the between the, the different? I think regimes? if we if we end up with a trade deal with the European Union, it will be the same. That assumes we end up with a trade deal with the European Union. But any country could, could block that. And if Poland would see that the UK doesn't offer a, yeah. a sufficiently favorable deal for Polish workers, then Absolutely. Poland would say, 
I yeah. don't want to, to sign a trade with the UK. Yeah, no? absolutely, completely agree. And that's the, the challenge is not only do we have to have a deal that the European Commission agrees to, that then every of the 27 member countries, and in some of those countries, they have to have their own referendums yes. to have the treaty deal. So, you know, it's it's a challenge in one. And as we saw recently with the Canada deal, a district in, I think it was in Austria, can derail, or Belgium can derail that whole um, part of the process. So, yeah, it's, it's, it, we're, we're on the first step of a very, very long journey, is how I describe it. I saw some other hands over there. Uh, Tim Rentrop, European Commission, but of course speaking in a personal capacity as an ex-lecturer on the internal market for over 10 years. It has just been briefly mentioned in one of the comments, the ECJ. One of the reasons, apart from the immigration, that the Brexit vote went that way is the perceived, this, the issue of supranationality and the influence of foreign judges in British politics. So both the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg and the Court of Justice in Strasbourg are, of course, under criticism there. Uh, prisoner voting rights for prisoners being one thing which may have been mixed up and many who have voted Brexit will also want to leave uh, the, that, the Human Rights Convention because of that. Now it's interesting if the British government, like David Cameron said, well we're different, why, why do we have these foreign judges interfering with us on such a moral issue? They contradict directly, and no one has pointed that out, they contradict directly the British prosecutors at the Nuremberg war, tri war tri crimes trials which is one of the reasons why we have the European Court of Justice in Strasbourg. Who is the one competent dealing with moral issues? They, for the whole of the member states. Now, if nobody does such a counter pressure to, this, to these uh, weird, let's say, weird arguments, it's no surprise then that Brexit votes go that way. So who are the politicians who would, going beyond, because they say we're now in a post-evidence-based situation, who are the politicians who carry the flag for supranationalism, speaking of post as an evidence of that we are in post-evidence situations. It's fine to present all these studies, but one newspaper article showing the Roman camp people camping in Hyde Park Corner, or the cramped Bulgarian and Romanian squatters in Duisburg or Düsseldorf, uh, and you have the German minister of the interior saying we can't have uh, labor, we can't have this social benefit tourism. Uh, of course, under EU law, there are tools to deal with it, but nobody says that. So where are the politicians who rectify those misperceptions in the general, in the general population? Okay, who would like to comment? <laughs> <laughs> that very non-controversial question, yeah. Um, I, I think maybe they are new politicians. So I don't know if you're aware that yesterday or today the results came through for a by-election in the UK for one of our MPs. And the person who won it um, actually only entered politics after the 2015 general election. So she'd never been an MP, never been a member of a political party, but she felt very strongly that she was a liberal and therefore wanted to contribute to the liberal movement after it got fairly um, you know, transed in the general election. So maybe there is a new generation out there who are going to be those standard bearers that you talk about. Thank you. Hi, uh, David Pure, I work for British Local Authority, but I'm here in a personal capacity. Uh, Lindsay, um, you spoke about half of the half of uh, people who are moving to the UK uh, come without a job offer. Um, I wonder if you might know what sort of sectors uh, they go into, if there's any uh, analysis on that. 
And Jonathan, um, on your point about the link between labour, migration and productivity, uh, thinking about if, yeah, assuming that Brexit happens, and it's a wonderful research project that mm. nobly taken on the whole of the European Union, we may still be here in several years' time, but who knows. On, on that particular point, um, what sort of changes do you think the UK may need to consider to its education and training system uh, and to economic development policy, uh, assuming that migration um, perhaps has covered some of the deficiencies in policy making over a number of years? Uh, so let me address the first point. It, it's a mix. There isn't one. It's not like all of those people are going into a particular area. They tend to be at the lower skilled end, but there are people who are going into highly skilled jobs as well. It tends to be people going into manufacturing, agricultural, um, and retail would be, and, and um, healthcare. Actually, kind of the four main areas that those people tend to go into um, because they'll come over and there's a, there's a need for those jobs. Um, I mean, uh, on education and training, uh, I mean, I, 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 I People often talk about the education, training, and migration as if they were somehow substitutes, and somehow, and I, I you know, I, I find that unpersuasive. The UK needs to quite to do quite a lot to improve its education and training system. Yep. It has done for at least a hundred years, um, and it's made some progress in some respects, and less progress in others. But I don't see um, that uh, um, migration has, you know, is, these are these are not substitutes. In fact, the areas of the UK which uh, um, uh, where immigration is lower are those where uh, um, migration, where, where education system typically doesn't do very well. You know, uh, um, rather ironically, the, air, the parts of the school system which have done by far the best over the last uh, uh, 15 years have been in London and, and some other very migrant-heavy uh, uh, areas. Um, so. Uh, um, you know, I, I think there is a lot we could and should be uh, do about education and training, but we should have been doing that anyway, and we should continue to do that almost regardless of what happens on, on immigration. And I think similarly, you know, on, on regional development policy, you know, we, the, the areas, a lot of the areas which vote most heavily for Brexit, not all of them, but a lot of them are areas that have done very badly over the past 30 years. That's not because of migration, nor have they been saved by the fact that that we've had high levels of migration because, of course, the migrants didn't go there. It's mostly a, 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 a separate issue, except perhaps politically. Perhaps one of the positive aspects of Brexit may be that we are in, you know, that the political system has a kick to do something about areas which have done particularly badly about out of globalization, automation, and technological change in general. Uh, we, can, we can hope uh, um, uh, the evidence isn't there yet. I would like to add just one sentence, arguing that uh, the key with, with migration is that people can come fast and they can leave fast. So it's, it's, it's about short-term adjustment, whereas education is about long-term adjustment. Yes. And uh, so one cannot be, by concept, uh, with the replacement of the yeah. other. Thank you. So, yeah, here. My name is Sebastian Ramsvik from the Swiss television, so I'm from a country which has a lot of experience in these <laughs> issues and is negotiating a deal, trying to. Um, I mean, in August there has been a paper published by Brutal Authors for a Continental Partnership, which basically said that uh, free, mo free movement is a good thing, but it's not a necessity in a single market. This basically was the, the 
the baseline of the paper, if I understand it right. And I mean, seeing the fact that the inequalities in Europe are huge and remain probably huge between different countries, partly um, also linked to the uh, dysfunctioning of the euro. I mean, movement, free movement of person will remain a, a topic, a political topic in yep. Europe. And that, I mean, the first person speaking was saying it's not only about economy, it's not only the economy stupid, maybe it's also other reasons that make people think that this is not only a good thing. Don't you think that in the, in the long run the, the political pressure will be more and more um, big in, the, in Europe to maybe change a little bit this system, not maybe going away from, from the principle in, in as such, but maybe have some national preference system and, and so on and so on. I mean, maybe for economists it's not a good thing, but I think the political reality might be a different one in 20 years, and it's maybe better to adapt now than to do it under the huge pressure that will might be in the future. Thank you. A very fundamental question. <laughs> Who would like to? Well, if one wants to pay the price, the lower lower output, um, that's uh, that's fine. You can always choose to to, to grow much less uh, than you otherwise want uh, or can. So the whole the whole European integration process uh, was about getting more and more welfare for everybody. If you want less and less, then uh, you can you can of course go in that direction. There's nothing. I mean, at the end, the voters, the governments, to decide about the constraints. Uh, uh, the political constraints, but the economy will not automatically. I don't see how. I mean, of course, I mean, we can re, we can say, okay, let's give up uh, labor mobility, but then we reintroduce flexible exchange rates, so we abolish the, the euro. Maybe that's a more efficient way to get flexibility. Perhaps yes, uh, a, a little bit of flexibility we get there. Yes, maybe more than with labor mobility, but we pay other prices. Yes, so uh, you're right. There are many, 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 many alternatives to to, to end. But, uh, but uh, in a way, we were working on a package of reasonable concepts to, to let Europe grow. And that's, we were on a good path, in my view. There was not much wrong. Uh, I mean, I, I, I agree with that broadly. I mean, it seems to me, yes, you can separate out different bits of economic integration to some extent. Although, I, I, you know, if you certainly have a free trade area without free movement, whether you have a single market that moves, but I think you know the whole point of the single market, to my mind, is that free the, and, and and indeed of the, the four freedoms from the first place is that they are complementary. They work together and add up to more the sum of their parts. It doesn't mean you couldn't unpick them, um, but. First of all, as Klaus says, you do economic damage. Um, but second of all, of course, you, you once you start unpicking them politically, where where does it end? And, and uh, so I have a considerable. I mean, I, you know, I, I, um, you you can imagine, as I say, I think you can imagine the UK in some sort of semi-detached area. I don't see why the rest of the European Union, where, as far as I can see. Most of the political concerns relating to immigration are not about labor mobility within the Union. They're much more about uh, 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 immigration from outside the European Union. I'm not quite sure why the EU, without us, would choose to, to, un choose to unpick that rather than to address some of the other, both non-EU migration as well as some of the other economic and structural problems it has. Yes, uh, just one more question from here. I'm uh, Philip Langensop of Reuters here. Um, I actually have kind of two questions. Uh, one is, uh, I suppose, the link between migration and sort of economic yeah. benefits. Obviously, 
but there's a sort of simple, simple kind of argument in terms of, of more migration equals uh, higher GDP. But I just wondered, maybe from your own studies or other studies, whether there have been uh, a look at how this is distributed, for example. I mean, clearly, you have higher GDP, you might have higher tax revenue or tax in, uh, income, and of course, you might be able to spend more perhaps on your, ben your benefit system. But I just wondered, you know, if you're, if you're the uh, death penalty supporting uh, lower skilled worker in, in Middlesbrough, for example, you know, what, what, is you, what might your gain be from, from perhaps higher migration? And I think it was, Lindsay, you mentioned that already there were, there, there were some sort of signs that uh, Brexit, or it could have been the pound, was having some impact perhaps on the agricultural sector in mm. terms of perhaps the willingness of people to come and, and work in, in Britain. But I just wonder maybe broadly what your views as to the, the sectors or parts of the economy which might sort of feel the pinch, assuming there is a sort of real squeeze of, of, of migration, you know, whether it be in the coming years or certainly you know, after, after Brexit has actually taken place. So uh, immigration is one of those subjects that kind of covers across the whole range. There's obvious areas that would be impacted if we had a much more restrictive freedom of movement around EU and didn't replace that with some kind of lower skilled um, scheme in the UK. The healthcare industry is one of the most obvious and that's not just about things like the NHS, that's actually about things like um, care for the elderly where we have a real shortage of individuals who are willing to work in care homes for example in the UK and we have an ageing population so it's an area that needs going to grow and actually the amount of people who are going to do it are reducing and retail kind of the two sort of standout ones but certainly when we're talking to companies it's across the range because even companies who themselves say well we predominantly hire highly skilled people so we're less worried they will have some knock-on effects from their supply chain so down the line where they are either going to have uh, see an increase in cost from their suppliers because they have to hire differently or actually an inability to deliver on some of those supplies because they can't get the labour to deliver that. So like I mentioned, um, that short-term agricultural um, people that we're already seeing issues there, we're already seeing issues in the UK around price rises. So, you know, these are all kind of knock-on effects that then will have impact um, in terms of even those businesses who may feel they're not that impacted immediately. On the perceptions point, there just is an obvious inherent asymmetry. If you go into your doctor's surgery and you hear somebody speaking in a foreign language, that is an obvious and, and pressure on, on the service you get. And it's a real one, you know, let's not pretend. That is a real pressure. Um, but to the extent that uh, that immigrant or some other immigrant is paying taxes that fund your doctor's surgery, well, there's absolutely no perception of that, and uh, you know, nor is it obvious how there could be in any sort of real meaningful sense. Of course, you can publish studies about it, but, but people in the surgery aren't reading it. So it's, it's quite difficult to get around that. The second point, you know, I mean, you talked about the death penalty, uh, I mentioned the death penalty, and I mentioned the death penalty to make sure that it's not just the economically left behind. It's people who are actually doing quite well um, you know, uh, uh, um, but ha feel alienated from the social aspects of globalization. Remember, of course, the uh, uh, um, the highest vote in by far in you know, one other key demographic predictor of whether you were going to vote leave in the UK was age. Retired people were much more likely to vote leave. In fact, retired people have done much better than people in work in the UK over the last 10 years. They've had their living standards, partly because immigrants pay taxes, they've had their living standards quite well protected and they haven't suffered from the real wage uh, uh, shrinkage that lots of, uh, lots of uh, people in working age. So it's, it's a lot more. 
complicated uh, uh, than that. And again, it's, you know, how the perceptions match the reality is, is mm. quite difficult to, uh, to perceive. Thank you. One more question from here. <coughs> because there was a statement from a gentleman from Switzerland. My apologies if I, I probably did not understand your statement completely well. But according to my recollection, uh, Switzerland has uh, a population of 8.3 million. That's what Wikipedia says. And you have in your country, residing legally, according to your Swiss official figures, 2 million people, of which 1.4 million so 1.39 something, 1.4 million are EU nationals, and also according to your official statistics on your websites, you have 360,000 daily commuters. Mm -hmm. um, with this background, uh, I just would like, because this information is something that I wasn't aware of until very recently, I simply wanted to share it with you, and perhaps the Swiss model is interesting to study for the UK. Uh, if, I, if, I, if I may add, add, add a follow-up. If I may add a follow-up question that, that, you know, in two years ago, or a bit more than two years ago, there was a referendum in Switzerland yep. mm. which voted down the free movement agreement with the European citizens. And the government has three years, so up to, say, the first half of next year. February. To February, it's very, very close to mm. renegotiate its position, I mean, <coughs> its agreement with the EU. And first, I mean, I'm, when I'm looking at it, it's very hard to get any information. What, what's your perception of what's going to happen in Switzerland? What's related to Brexit, whether the new deal with Switzerland can be a model also for what deal we will reach with the UK on immigration issues? So it's interesting that basically the EU kind of refused to negotiate with Switzerland about that until the UK vote had happened because they didn't want to create a precedent that we could then say, well, you gave this deal to Switzerland. And I think there is a little bit of a perception, and it comes to the point that you made, Claire, that we should just rerun run the vote and hopefully we will come to our senses. And same with Switzerland, hopefully you will come to your senses. But I think the reality is the polls show the opposite, actually. I think one of the reasons why Switzerland won't rerun their um, referendum is that they think actually it won't even be as close as it was last time and actually more likely because things have, have moved more to the right and I think unfortunately even if the UK did rerun and vote right now I don't think that we would necessarily vote to remain in which um, you know we'll have a general election which changes things you know there's a lot of other political stuff going on so I think there is a, not very much information out there because I don't think there's been very much movement which given that we are couple of months away from Switzerland having to implement that and probably know more about this. So I shall defer to the gentleman here. But this also just says that yeah. even in, in a country like Switzerland, where you want to be very restrictive, you cannot avoid reality. Mm -hmm. Yes, You have lots of permanent and temporary migrants. And maybe the prediction is in 10 years, the UK outside of the European Union has many more migrants inside. Maybe, maybe we're all wrong. Yes, it's, it, 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 when you're following the, the, the Swiss model, you're following reality, and, well, and then you, some people may be upset that it hasn't helped, yes, moving out of... Uh, because one is clear uh, from migration research that the more you are restrictive, the more you get unwanted migration, yes? The, 
this may be a puzzle to you, but it's, I mean, it's proven for the United States, Doug Massey, a sociologist. He has endlessly shown that in the, in, in the United States there would be very many migrants illegally less if there would be free mobility. Because if you come and go, then, then you go when you're no longer needed and whatever. Yeah. But if you cannot come back, you stay and you bring family, just as a simple argument. And we have similar things in Europe. So uh, this is one of the uh, a lesson we have have not learned from, from <laughs> not migration history. Now our, our time is running out, but I saw that our Swiss colleague just because yeah. to just ask for okay. nothing short. in in two sentences. I mean, the EU refused basically any negotiation, either on the treaty or within the treaty framework. So the Swiss Parliament, as we speak, as today is one of the sessions, is like adopting a law who is like um, putting into place a new law um, based on this immigration anti-immigration referendum. But basically, it's I mean, in one word, it's nothing. Yeah. It's like a it's cap like that can like never that you, It was yeah. very, 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 very difficult or impossible with the EU to get anything on that issue. Yeah. Okay, so I, I think we could continue the discussion for, for many more hours, but uh, our time is, is practically over. So I felt quite some agreements among our panelists, yeah. maybe because we are all economists and, and indeed our challenge to convince the general people that economic trusts and, and the other data we use are not just trying to somehow uh, <coughs> convince them of something bad, but, but something which is really helpful for the economy and society. Uh, but I have to close this session now. Yep. So I thank very much for all three of you, and also for all of you for coming and participating in this, in this very interesting discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you.